Good morning, Sound City. This is the word of the Lord. Joshua 2, 8 through 14. Before the men lay down and she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants in the land melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon and Og, among whom you devoted destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save a, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Amen. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you're new, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And what we are doing now, uh, this month of December, this Advent season, is a sermon series called Women of the Advent. Advent is this time of preparation leading up to Christmas where we uh, remember that feeling of longing, that feeling of desire for God to send his long-awaited promised Messiah. And for us who live on the other side of the coming of Jesus, we now look forward to the return of Jesus, his expected and awaited return. And so that may be something, maybe you don't think about the end times during Christmas. Uh, I went to the Alderwood Mall yesterday. I thought about Armageddon and the end times uh, here this Christmas season. But for us to be thinking about and longing for the return of Jesus. But as we look back on the first coming of Jesus, what this series is based on is a list of names found in Matthew chapter 1. It's called a genealogy, a list of names. Now, I'm expecting some honesty here. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a Bible reading plan and you came to one of those long lists of names and you thought, you know what, next year I'll read that portion. Be honest. Anybody? Okay. Well, and that's very sad because uh, there are some incredible gospel truths embedded in lists of names, these genealogies, like what we find in Matthew chapter 1. And in particular, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew highlights these four women, these four Gentile women, non-Jewish women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. These four Gentile women with sort of scandalous type of circumstances that they're involved in, Matthew intentionally puts these women's names into his genealogy, which is not a common practice in the ancient Near East. And so there's some intentionality behind that from Matthew, ultimately from the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Word of God to be written. And so what we're doing this Christmas season is we're asking, why? Why are these women's names in there? What is it that we can learn from their witness and from their testimony as we celebrate the coming of our Messiah? And so we're going to look today at Rahab, or as she is known in virtually every passage of the Bible that she has mentioned, both Old Testament and New Habit, Rahab the prostitute. So I want to dive into her story. I want to ask for you to join with me in prayer before we do that. Lord God, we give this time to you. We give our hearts to you right now. We give our attention to you right now. And Lord God, I ask in particular that you would help us to give our trust to you. Maybe some people here today are feeling weak, are feeling vulnerable, they're feeling marginalized. God, I ask and I pray that you would help them to find their trust more deeply in you because, God, those are the exact type of people that you said that you came to show the kingdom of God to. God, for some today, or maybe they're feeling strong, feeling successful, feeling uh, reasonably well off. And Lord God, I pray deeply for all of those, that we would not put our faith in our success or our finances or any such thing, Lord God. We would put our faith more deeply in you, our trust more deeply in you. God, thank you for the witness and the testimony of Rahab. 
God, may we honor her and her legacy today as we dive into this, this story. God, I pray for me that you would guard my lips and let me only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and give us all soft and receptive hearts that we might receive that truth from you. We pray this today in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I want to talk about faith today, the faith of Rahab specifically, but I want to take a moment to just define faith because I don't know about you, but for me, faith is one of those words that can sound sort of esoteric. It can sound sort of uh, kind of detached. It's hard to define with precision. And, and, and faith kind of felt that way for me, just the word faith, understanding it, until some years back when I, I stumbled across some writings that, that the Protestant reformers around the age of the, the Protestant Reformation wrote that was really helpful for me. And the way that they talked about faith is it wasn't just this kind of floaty, you just got to have faith. You guys know the floaty, the floaty faith? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like floaty faith is when you hear on the, like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, some celebrity on some soap opera that none of y'all should be watching says like, well, to me, the holidays are really just a time about faith. And my kids can attest, I'm literally yelling at the TV, faith in what? Faith about what? Well, you just got to have faith. It's like that great theologian George Michael once said, you just got to have faith, you know, just like what? What about faith? And the, the Protestants talked about faith, the Protestant reformers, I should say, talked about faith as having three critical parts for it to be a biblical type of faith. First of all, there has to be some sort of knowledge. There has to be some sort of content. I have faith that the Seahawks could beat the Rams tonight, okay? That's the content of what we're talking about, right? Amen. Thank you, Nora. But there's, that, that's a starting point. That's just knowledge. That's just information. I believe there is a God. Okay, great. The demons believe that. It goes another level deeper into the heart where we say, I'm going to assent to that truth. I'm going to submit to that truth. A heart-level submission. I really believe that the Seahawks will beat the Rams at 5 o'clock tonight, Okay? Or thank you again. I, you should be a cheerleader. This is great. Uh, I believe that there is a God and I believe that he offers to salvation to all who come to him through Christ Jesus. And then there is trust, which is maybe my favorite word on this list because for me, it's the most concrete. It's the most tangible. It's the one that actually has the most action to it. I am going to now live my life as though there is a God and that he offers salvation to those who come to him in Christ Jesus. I'm going to live my life in a way that would show that I actually believe this previous content. You guys tracking with me? That's what true biblical faith really looks like. And I always think, whenever I think about faith and trust, I'm going to use those words interchangeably. I always go back in my mind to a few years ago when um, one of the men who helped us launch the church, uh, Travis, he was one of our pastors at the time. You guys remember Travis? Love Travis. And uh, Travis was preaching a sermon. I think it was from the book of Hebrews. And he had these three main points. And he's like, so he's wrapping up at the end. And he's like, you just got to remember those three points. He goes, it's faith, trust. And my wife and I leaned over, we're sitting there and just said, and pixie dust. Because we have four daughters. And so we have seen every Tinkerbell thing that there is. And that's the famous line, you know, faith, trust, and pixie dust. To this day, I have no idea what his third point actually was. Because in my mind, it was a sermon that Travis preached about faith, trust, and pixie dust. So, uh, but for me, those words, faith and trust, they're, they're really important. I mean, faith, again, it can sound kind of intangible or just kind of something up there, but trust, like trust is something you all know. There are people that you trust and there are people that you do not trust. Amen? There are, there are experience you have in your life where trust has been broken quickly and it is only gained slowly over time. I came across a quote from the great Scottish author. He was actually very influential on C.S. Lewis where he said, to be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved. And I, I just, I, I pondered that this week and thought about that. What an amazing thought that trust, really, when you think about faith as, as being more or less synonymous with trust, just the weight that then comes into it. So let's talk about faith. Let's talk about trust. Let's not talk about pixie dust. Let's talk about Rahab. And I would say that the story of Rahab is a story of this faith in action, this trust that goes deeper than just a, an intellectual belief. And so when we pick up the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua, where we've been up until this point is God has redeemed his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. 
under the leadership of Moses, he rescues them. He sets them free. He has worked uh, miraculous signs in freeing them. And he has promised to give them a land. God says, you will be my people. I will be your God. You will live in this land with me forever. And there's a, there's a, a promise that from that land, from that land of what's known as Canaan at the time, that God would use the people of Israel to bless all the nations of the earth. And so as they come out of the desert after the giving of the Ten Commandments, they come right up to the edge of the land, and Moses says, all right, we need 12 spies. Go in and scout out the land and come back and tell us what you see. And there are 12 spies sent in, and I don't know if you remember this part, but only two of them have trust in God. A man named Joshua, a man named Caleb. The other 10 come back and say, it's real bad in there. The, the walls are really thick and tall. The cities are well fortified. I mean, the people are in there like giants. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. We should abort the mission and just probably go back to Egypt and ask for our old jobs back. Meanwhile, Joshua and Caleb are like, are you serious? We've got Yahweh on our side. But because of this bad report, the people lost heart. They lost courage. They lost faith. And so God says, all right, I'm going to have you wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that generation dies off and a new generation is raised up. And so that's what happens. They wander in the wilderness. They wander for 40 years. Moses eventually dies and Joshua is now the leader. And God says to Joshua, okay, it's time to go into this promised land. So we pick up in Joshua chapter two. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Joshua is no longer the spy. He is now the leader who is himself sending spies into the land. And you have to understand that Jericho occupies a very strategic spot in the geography of the Near East. It's right on all the main uh, trade routes. It's right there geographically, kind of the, the entrance point into this whole land of Canaan. So let's go start out by looking at Jericho. And so these spies went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged here. And I'm not going to get deeply into the subject matter. I, I have some more things to say about this in a little bit, but, but just the idea here, kind of at a practical level, is that if, if she is a prostitute, uh, it would not really raise suspicion to see men kind of coming and going from her house. That would not be something that, that would kind of make sense if at a strategic level to say, hey, where could we go to try to avoid suspicion? We don't want the, the soldiers or the, the leaders to know that we're here to spy out the land. We'll go stay at the house of this prostitute. But it, it didn't really work because the king got word, hey, listen, men of Israel have come here tonight and they're searching out the land. The reputation of this wandering, nomadic, former slave group people of Israel has actually preceded them, not because they were so impressive, but because God is so impressive. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab and says, bring out those men who've come to you. Get them out of your house, for they've come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, well, it's true, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. It's called plausible deniability right there. And when the, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men left. So I don't know where the men went. You better, you better run after them quickly, for you could catch them. You'll overtake them. So Rahab then enters into a, a long line of Hebrew, in particular Hebrew women, in the pages of the Hebrew scriptures, who are deceptive toward evil rulership and evil authority who are intent on taking a life. And there's a big subject matter and the ethics of all that sort of stuff. I will just simply say the scriptures have nothing but good to say about Rahab and what she did because in her heart, the intention is to save life. Like the midwives uh, back in Egypt who lied to the Pharaoh and the, and the officials there. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men, the soldiers, they took off. They pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. That's a good little ways out there. She sent them on a wild goose chase. And, and the gate shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. They're like locked out of their own city now. 
before the men had laid down, see, and we're flashing back now, she had come up to them on the roof and she said to the men, listen to this, you guys, this is amazing. I know, I, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Pa- just pause there for a moment. I know that Yahweh, your God, has made a promise to your ancestor Abraham, has made a promise to your people that you're going to have this land. Now, is this just mere intellectual head knowledge? Or is there something deeper going on here? She's saying, I know that your God is the kind of God who keeps his promises. And the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we heard what you did to those two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, as soon as we people in Jericho heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit, or the the word can also be translated as breath. There was no breath left in any man because of you we're, we're, we're quite disturbed, breathless, heartless, because the Lord your God, listen to this confession, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Friends, it's hard to find a more beautiful, simple confession of faith in the pages of the Old Testament before the coming of Christ than this right here. Think about all that she has said. I know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And I know that he's the kind of God who makes promises to his people. And I believe that he will keep his promise to Israel. And you're going to take possession of this land. It's amazing. It's an amazing confession of faith. Because think about our confession of faith. What is, you know, we, we, we focus on Jesus, the Christ, and his, his death and his resurrection. But at the end of the day, what is our confession of faith? There is a God. He offers to keep his promises, and he has kept his promises, and he's kept his promise through Jesus, and he will keep his promise to give us eternal life if we just have faith in him. I mean, think about it. It's really not all that different. We just have more information to go on. Then she makes a request, verse 12. So please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. Note that there's not really a a husband who is named here. All of this has to do with her father, mother, extended family. I want you to save alive. Give me a sure sign that you'll save alive my father, mother, brothers, sisters, all their families who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours is even to death. They're essentially saying, if we don't, we we will do what you ask and we would even trade our lives for yours. If you don't tell this business of ours, like help, help us keep this quiet, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall. It's really cool, actually. You can look up archaeological photos of, of digs and, and ruins from that era and that period and that place in the world. And it's, it's just as it says here, they would build houses, particularly the bigger cities, these thick walls that would actually have dwelling places in them. I would show you a picture, but I forgot. So... <laughs> so she lowered them down because so she lived in the wall. She said, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. You know, a lot of us, uh, you know, Christians on the other side of the empty tomb, three days, like, ooh, three days, hiding, three days, Jesus. And that's fun. But I think it's more kind of textually accurate to say that in that time period, that would be the amount of time that you would show that you really had done as best you could. Hey, we've been hunting them for three days. We can't find them. Sorry. So go hide for three days. Once those pursuers have returned, then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you've made us swear. So listen, here's what I want you to do. When you come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet red cord in the window through which you let us down. And then you need to gather into your house, your father, mother, brothers, all their household, If anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, well, their blood will be on their own head, will be guiltless. You need to keep everybody here. But 
if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, let it be. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. There's no way to definitively prove this, but many scholars see a connection between having a red cord in the window of her house with the red blood that was painted on the doorposts of the house of the children of Israel when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. It's as if the author is subtly telegraphing the idea that she is being welcomed in to the people of Israel. And if she's being welcomed into the people of Israel, and if that red cord symbolizes the blood of the lamb that was painted on the doorposts of Passover, then she too is connected to Jesus whose blood was spilled as our perfect Passover lamb. What a cool thought that is. We're going to skip over to Joshua chapter 6. The people of Israel are preparing themselves. The Lord meets with them. There's feasts and dedication and they start the battle. And, and then you guys remember the command was to march around the city one time each day for six days. And on the seventh day, they are to march around the city seven times. Good job. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. You know, you, you know it. And if you don't, you should for crying out loud. Joshua 6, starting in verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they had marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, and by the way, trumpets are loud. Do we have any parents whose kids play trumpet in the room here? They're like, what? (laughs) They can't hear me because their kids play trumpet. And these are like ram's horns, a shofar. These are louder than normal trumpets. And it's a whole pile of them playing the trumpets. And Joshua says, when the, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, well, we should get even louder. It's time to shout. For the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Oh, wait. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Jumping down to verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house. It's very repetitive, is it not? This is Rahab, the prostitute, the prostitute. Author does not want you to miss this key detail about this not only Gentile woman. Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved. By the way, Joshua is the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is the same as what Jesus' mother would have called him. Is that not interesting that our Savior is named after this particular figure who redeems the outcast and takes the people of God into the promised land? And she, Rahab, has lived in Israel to this day. That's to the day of this writing. (laughs) Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho, and now this Canaanite marginalized prostitute is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Wow. Okay. I want to draw three things out. The first two, I think, are simple. They're massive, but they're simple, and you've probably heard them before. And then the third one, I want to spend a little bit more time on. First is this. Salvation only comes through faith. The text clearly tells us that Rahab was saved. She was saved from destruction. And we can see 
that before she ever did anything, before she ever hid the spies, before she covered them, before she sent the soldiers on a wild goose chase, she had already come to a conviction in her heart that Yahweh of Israel is the one true God, and she ought to push all her chips into the center of the table, as it were, and say, I'm going to go ride or die with Israel and their God. It's in the text. You got to know how to translate it. But that's the heart behind what she's saying. This, this has happened in her heart. There is no God in heaven or on earth like Yahweh of Israel. So I'm, I'm going to go throw my lot in with this God. Rahab was saved by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, the great uh, hall of faith chapter, by faith it says Rahab the prostitute. See, even the New Testament authors are being clear Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It was by faith that she did not perish. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says that that if you want to not perish, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his only son that whoever believes, which is another word for trust, which is another word for faith, will not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Rahab is saved by faith in the promises of God. And so I say simply to you, we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our good moral efforts. We are not saved. We do not come to God and say, what do I need to do to be saved? He says, here's a checklist. If you get these seven or 12, one of those favorite numbers of God things right, you can enter into my kingdom. He says, abandon all hope in anything else. Put your trust in Jesus and you're in. How good is that news, friends? Now, salvation is by faith alone. I would give my life for that truth. A second related thought that flows from this and one that sometimes people trip over is true faith always leads to action. Now, the Apostle Paul writes a lot about we're saved by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. It's only by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. He's showing that you cannot get into God's good graces by your moral effort. We affirm that, right? Later on, James, who is one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, the, the, the brother of Jesus, comes along and he writes a letter because, get this, some people had misunderstood and misunder, uh, misapplied what Paul was trying to say. And they had taken it too far and said, well, then our works don't matter. And if you know James, the book of James, you know he's a little bit, not happy with that. James 2, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? I mean, just real subtle, James, right? You idiot. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? Now, he's going to use two examples, only two examples from the Hebrew Bible to show that real faith is going to lead to action. The first one, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. He wasn't just doing dead works. I mean, you can staple fruit to a dead tree. You can do that. You would be a foolish person, but a healthy tree is going to produce fruit. Faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Abraham's faith, it started in his heart, it led to action. Who do you think that James, the brother of Jesus, is going to choose as person number two to demonstrate? I mean, Father Abraham, Abraham for crying out loud. Father Abraham had many sons. (laughs) I'm not going to sing it. I've already used up my one weird song for the day. Verse 25. And in the same way as Father Abraham was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body, here it is, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What he is saying is you got to have a spirit alive inside to make the body work. But one of the ways you know that the spirit inside is alive is that the body works. Person just laying there like, no, they're alive. I, I don't see any, they're not breathing, their heart's not beating. There's like, no, trust me, they've got faith. They're alive. It's fine. Like, so friends, are we saved by our works? No. 
Does true saving faith lead to God-pleasing works? And it's all about the heart and it's all about the order of operations. First, we come to God and say, I place my faith in you and then I'm now free to use my redeemed will to live in step with the Spirit and to do works that are pleasing to God. Okay? Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, you just got to let go and let God. Or sometimes you hear like that great American theologian, Carrie Underwood, you know, Jesus, take the wheel, right? It's, it's that kind of a thing. And, I, and I, I get the heart that's behind that. It's very easy for me to want to be in charge of my own life. I get the heart that's behind that. But, but maybe a better thing to say would be like, Lord Jesus, would you lead me and guide me to, to live my life in step with that which is pleasing to you because you offered me grace even when I hated you in the depths of my heart. But that doesn't work itself into a country song quite as nicely. So, Now, here's number three, and this is where I want to land the plane on this, okay? Here's what I think we see very clearly in the story of Rahab, is that God's grace is seen in weak people who have faith. Think about Rahab. She does not have a lot going for her. First of all, she is a woman living in a very male-dominated world. Second of all, she is a Gentile, a Canaanite. She's an outsider as it relates to being a part of the family of Abraham, the people of Israel. And third, she is a prostitute. And um, despite the ways that we sometimes think about prostitution, um, I guess I, I would hope we could all agree that no one is sitting around thinking, you know, this would be a great career path among other choices. Okay? There's some desperation here to find yourself in this position. Maybe she was widowed. She had a husband at one point. Maybe she never was widowed. We see there's no husband mentioned here. Just father, mother, siblings. Carolyn Pressler is a scholar. Uh, She has a really helpful quote on this idea. She says this, Rahab's status as a prostitute is also important to understanding why the Canaanite would help Israelites planning to invade her city. You ever thought about that? Why would she help these people? See, we tend to consider prostitution as a moral issue, but then, as now, prostitution is far more a matter of economics. In a majority of cases, poverty and a lack of other means of survival force women to sell their bodies. And in the ancient Near East, prostituted women were tolerated because they were necessary for men's satisfaction, but they were despised. They were not outlawed, they were just outcast. As an economically marginalized social outcast, Rahab would have little reason to be loyal to the city's rulers. According to the biblical story, the Israelite tribes were also economically and socially marginal, escaped slaves, landless wanderers. It is not implausible that a destitute woman like Rahab would identify more with the poor Israelites than with the rich lords of Jericho. And I find that intriguing because it helps provide some explanation on a human level what we know to be true about the way that God works throughout human history. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says to the people of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, this is after the time of Jesus, he's writing this letter and he says, hey, you know, brothers, you ought to to consider your calling. When Jesus called you, not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Do you ever feel like the people in Corinth are like, whoa, whoa, easy, Paul. Call us a bunch of poor idiots. Paul's like, yes. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of God, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. I don't know about you, things that are low and despised, weak, not esteemed, not only does that remind me of Rahab, that reminds me of the way that God has worked consistently. God delights in showing off his grace and his power by working in and through people who we would tend to write off. Can you agree that people like winners? People like winners. Like, nobody is cheering on the Cincinnati Bengals right now, okay? So I got football on the brain. I'm excited about tonight, right? Uh, you have, you have, you know, it's a joke. It's a movie. It's a joke. But the line in, uh, in, from Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last, right? Now he's joking. He's being hyperbolic. But I would argue that that's actually the mentality of most of our culture. We want to hitch our wagon up to winners, We jump on the bandwagon when this person is doing well. You see this in politics. They call it the surge. What does a surge mean? A politician gets one person to say that they like them, and then everyone says, oh, I'm going to, they probably are going to win. I'm going to hitch my bandwagon to that politician, to that sports team, to that leader. Our God is the kind of God who says, you find me the weak and despised. You find me the useless. You find me the ones who nobody would think is going to be able to do anything great. And God says, watch me show off my glory. Aren't you glad that God doesn't only use perfect people? Because then he would have no one to use. There's only ever been one perfect person. His name is Jesus. And friends, even he came in weakness and humility. When the prophet Isaiah is still looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah writes this beautiful passage. We find in Isaiah 53, he said, who who would believe what he's heard from us? Like, like brace yourself. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be hard to believe. To whom has the arm of the Lord, the strength of the, the arm of the Lord, like that's literally the phrase that is used when God crushes Egypt and the Pharaoh, the arm of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. Listen to the description of the strength, the strong right arm of the Lord. Well, he grew up like a, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Any of you here ever planted a plant? You see like the little shoot? What do you do with it? Careful, ooh, gentle. Mm, uh. that's, that's my best gardening impression. <laughs> a young plant and a root, and he he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty. He wasn't winning any beauty pageants that we should desire, and he was actually despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces. Like, you, you, you see somebody, I had a, uh, an experience last week down in Seattle where I was with some friends and somebody, a homeless person, was, was very obviously under the influence of powerful drugs and it was just an awkward and uncomfortable thing. And, and there's that feeling of like, I just want to look away. It's too unpleasant to look at. That's what Jesus is like. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Surely, surely the Messiah that God promised wouldn't be put to death publicly like a common criminal. That surely would not be the king that was promised, right? We have to assume that he did something wrong before God. No, he bore our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed to take on our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. The Savior, the Redeemer of the world comes into the world. Is, his family is embarrassed by him. The religious leaders are skeptical of him. His own disciples waver and fall away. The political leaders of the day view him as dangerous and a threat. Nobody during his earthly life is picking Jesus. And yet, 
He is the one in whom we find salvation through his death on the cross and through his victorious resurrection on the third day. That's our Savior. Weak, marginalized. Oh, oh, don't hear me wrong. He never stopped being God. He never stopped being the arm of the Lord. He never stopped being fully divine. But he showed us that God's plan to conquer sin, death, and human evil is to send his son in weakness. Like Rahab the prostitute, his great-great-great-great-grandmother. And like Rahab pushed all her chips to the middle of the table and says, I'm going in with Israel and their God. Friends, we get to push all our chips into the middle of the table and say, I'm going all in with Israel's Messiah and God, Jesus Christ. Now, it's an amazing testimony, this woman Rahab. And she's lauded, she's praised for her faith. And so I want to close by offering some ways I think we can stir up faith. How many of you know God wants us to be people of faith? We've seen the beauty of Jesus. He wants us to respond in faith. Hebrews 11, that whole chapter starts with, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without trust, it's impossible to please God. So how do we build our trust more in Jesus? Let me offer you four thoughts. Number one, you really need to ask your own heart some tough questions like, what do I truly trust in? How many of you know that it is easy to say, I trust in Jesus, But then sometimes life circumstances come along that show you that you actually really trust in something else. Let me offer you a few examples. Um, It's easy to say, I trust in Jesus, not in money, until the day that the money and the plans that you had for it go completely upside down. And then you lose sleep, you're ungodly and ungracious to the people close to you. Just that, I mean, it's, it's reasonable to be maybe concerned with, with money and caring for your family. That's, there's, but you guys know what I'm talking about. It's when that moment comes, oh, that's actually where my trust was. For those of you who are parents, no, I'm a, my identity is in Christ, not in my children. Oh, really? Have they ever just embarrassed you at the mall? I'm talking about other people's kids. Nobody here, just theoretically, Right? And all of a sudden, you're like, quiet, quiet. You're like putting a shopping bag over their head. Like, stop it, you know. And like, it's because you care what people think about you. And instead of your identity being in Christ, your identity now is wrapped up in your kids behaving and reflecting good on you. Have you ever had someone come to you at community group and say like, hey, can I talk to you? Because I see some stuff kind of going on in your, your heart and your words that I don't see as very godly. And they start to point these things out to you. And your immediate response is defensive, dig your heels in. No, 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 I was just, I was just. Think about that word. I was just. I was justified. So your justification is found in your ability to do good instead of in Jesus. You gotta, I mean, this can play out in a million different ways. But I'm challenging you. Ask yourself the hard questions and even invite other people in. That will help stir up faith. Because John Calvin said that the human heart is like a factory that just churns out idols constantly. It's easy to say, I trust in God, but when the rubber hits the road, our heart's truest trust gets found. Number two, don't let hardship diminish your faith. I love this portrait of Rahab, this this poor, destitute woman who's a, a leader in the faith, even with difficult circumstances. How many of you know Maybe raise your hand if you've ever gone through a hard season you've prayed things like, God, where are you? God, what's going on? Hardship will try to rattle our faith. Difficulties will come and we'll, we'll be like, God, I'm, I'm pleading with you. What's going on? Where are you? Ah, I can't see you. And, and man, it might be, it might be uh, tempting to let your faith grow cold. Number three is closely related, and I think it's actually even more dangerous. Don't let success and prosperity choke out your faith. I think that success and prosperity is like carbon monoxide for faith, just a silent killer. Because at least in hardship, you're often driven to think about God. God, where are you? God, what's going on? But in prosperity and success, it's real easy to go for a long time without ever thinking about God. Going through life, 
happy, content, trusting in yourself, living essentially faithlessly before the Lord because like Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Friends, in this area of the world, in the North Seattle suburbs, like there's more prosperity than we know what to do with. The poorest among us are using an an iPhone 6 instead of an iPhone 11. So easy to be able to trust in our job, the promotion, the 401k, the safety nets, the government program, all the different things around us, our own ability to just work hard. And prosperity, this is my opinion. I think prosperity is 10 times more dangerous to faith than hardship is. Both, both will challenge your faith, but prosperity will just choke it out, which leads me to the last point, which is maybe you ought to spend some more time with the marginalized. See, this is always a risk you run in church. Because in church, like, see if you relate to this. I hope that I am a more godly and mature person in 2020 than I was in 2019. Do you hope that for yourself? My wife hopes that for me. Do you hope that for yourself? Do you hope to be a more godly and a mature person? Do you hope to, by God's grace, make better decisions and to live a more God-honoring life and not be foolish and not be sinful? Does anybody hope that? Like, I hope that. I want that. I want to grow in grace. But as we gather together as a group of believers who are committed to growing in godliness without even intending to, church can turn into the good people's club. And I know there's some of you who even here, like the first time you ever set foot into a church, you were afraid that lightning was going to strike you or something because you were not part of the good people's club. Others of you right now are trying to pretend like you're in the good people's club. And you know what helps break that? Spending time with the people Jesus spent time with. Join up with Pastor Kyle on one of the, the outreaches for homeless people. Go, you know, get a foster kid in your house. Go uh, pack boxes for Syrian refugees. Do something to get out of the oftentimes accidental good people's Christian church club so that we can actually see what it means when God says that I am with the broken and the marginalized and the weak and the poor. I'm thankful for the testimony of Rahab. I'm thankful for her faith. And I'm praying that God would grow us as people of true faith in him. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we bring our hearts before you now. God, I confess, and, and, and any who wants to join with me, confess that it's far too easy to put our trust into other things above and beyond you, Jesus, our Savior. And so for that, we repent. God, I ask that you would be gracious to give us opportunities to show us where those areas in our heart lie so that we might, by your grace, seek to just get rid of them and place our trust more deeply in Jesus. God, I ask and I pray, even especially now as we come to the table and celebrate communion, that we would be reminded that even if we are successful according to worldly standards, spiritually, we all have been hopeless wrecks. And the only reason that we're invited to the table of God, the table of fellowship, is because of the grace of God poured out in Jesus Christ. God, would you give us that that type of heart when, when Jesus, you said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Would you give us that type of heart now as we come to the table and as we sing songs of praise? That the focus would not be on us and our greatness, but the focus would be on you and your grace and how you delight in showing your goodness through the faith of weak and broken people. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Pastor Doug. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. As we go to communion, um, go ahead and pull out the communion elements that you picked up on the way in. If you didn't get a chance to get one, you can find one at the entrances or there's a couple down here for you. I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians where Paul speaks to us. 
The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus allowed his body to be broken on the cross of Calvary so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Though, it's so, though it sometimes feels like we are, we, we are no longer bound to sin. We have hope in the work God has done in us, is doing in us, in us and will do in our daily lives. He wants us to remember this. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins so that we could be adopted as children of a holy God and live in his presence, not just for eternity, but now. Often I tend to notice the sin in my life or I see Rahab as a harlot and a liar. But as Pastor Aaron said earlier, not our God. He does the opposite. Our father calls Rahab a hero. Simply because she believed in him. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read that every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be judged for our sin, because the good news is our sin was washed away by the blood Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary. But to be rewarded for what we've done. This is, this is what we remember now. This is why we celebrate and worship our gracious God. Paul goes on, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So now, let's go to the table of the Lord. It's so easy, but let's just not go through the motions. But come in sincerity and contemplation. For those who have trusted in Christ, come before God with thanksgiving for Jesus' death that covers our sin. But if this is all new to you, reach out to God now. I was struck by what Pastor Aaron said about Rahab and where it says, Deliver our lives from death. Do that now. Don't put this off, for this is a moment that will change you now and for eternity. Because of Jesus' death on your behalf, all you have to do is believe in him. Confess, trusting his death as the payment for your sins, and you'll be saved. If you have questions, please ask someone next to you or go to the Connect desk or better yet, go to the prayer team afterwards. Then when you're ready, the band will play, take of the bread and the cup and rejoice. Father, we come into your presence only by the blood and in the name of Jesus. Lord, direct our thoughts, our words and prayers now for our good and for your glory. Amen.